If you've ever felt isolated, confused, or overwhelmed by midlife changes, you're not alone. Welcome to Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. I'm so happy you're here. I'm the author of Me, Myself, and I, a midlife coach and public speaker. My mission is to create deeper conversations with dynamic people from all walks of life about how midlife's completely shifted who they thought they were and ultimately how they've come to see themselves again. When it comes to navigating the funky junk of midlife identity loss and the unnamed grief that goes along with it, it's time for straight talk. Get ready for real stories, real connection, and real hope accompanied by a little bit of humor and a whole lot of love. You're now part of Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. Welcome to Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. My guest with me is one of my favorite people. I'm so lucky I get to have these conversations with my favorite people. Sitting with me by Zoom is one of my favorite writers and thinkers, Tom Hallman, Pulitzer Prize winning and a longtime journalist, a writer of many, 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 many stories that have touched thousands of people over many years. Uh, journalist for the Oregonian for how many years, Tom? I will have my 40th anniversary at the paper in December. Isn't that amazing? 40 years. That's like a whole lifetime. And I started at the Oregonian as a summer copy boy in 1975, basically just a glorified gopher. I actually changed typewriter ribbons, electric typewriter ribbons for people. Then I came back the next year as an intern, was there with the legendary Les Zeitz, who is now one of the best investigative reporters in the country. And even then, Les was better than not just all the other interns, but most of the staff. So that's that's my first introduction to the Oregonian. Well, there's so many questions. Let's just start small <laughs> and we'll, we'll work our way into deep. How are you faring these days with so many of the personal and professional changes? Being a journalist or writer is, is an isolating role anyway. So the act of writing has not changed. I'm still looking at the white screen. Where I do it and how I get my stimulation has changed, where before I was very much a man of habit. I would go to the office and I had my desk. And when I was stuck on a story, I would get up and walk around. I might walk uh, down to the Starbucks, even walk around downtown Portland. And that's when I would would think about the story. And oftentimes the idea for the story or the opening to a story came for me during those moments when I was doing nothing. Now that the office is closed, what I miss is the stimulation of meeting people, strangers, contacts, going out and seeing somebody do something that leads to the scenes that tell a story. I have been working at home for six weeks and I've only gone out on one story, and that was last week when I went to see the principal at Grant High School meet graduating seniors. But that's the first time, and I watched her in the parking lot and the things I took for granted, a little bit of dialogue, what she was doing. That's the first time I've used that. Everything else has been on the phone, which is very different. In a sense, this feels like being a foreign correspondent because all my communication with my editor is I send the story in, 
She sends it back with questions. It's the way it worked with my books and all my national magazine articles. I've never met any of those people. But this is very different in daily journalism, where it is very much more collaborative experience. You are a people person. And I don't mean that in the cliche way. I mean, you get your air, your blood, your livelihood of who you are in the world based on immersing yourself in who other people are and being in their stories and connecting with them and looking them in the eyes and, you know, making meaning of their words and that contact. I've seen you in action. I mean, not just with me, but I've seen you doing your thing and you absorb the whole entirety of that person. There is a difference in the kind of stories I think I am writing now compared to six months ago, where there is a more of a distance in how I fully inform the reader about the people I'm writing about because I'm basically only getting our conversation. I can't see how they move through the world, how they dress, what they do. When you ask them a question, like, how are you feeling? And if there's a pause in their eyes, do something, you follow that up with another question. So I'm very dependent on old fashioned police reporting in a sense. You call up somebody, say, how many people were in the car accident? Where did it happen? Who was injured? So it's not who, what, where, when, the traditional journalism from the 50s, but it's not the narrative journalism that I kind of made my name with and have uh, many other newspaper writers have done. So we're kind of in this hybrid place right now. I would say that what you have seen, at least in my stories, you're finding much more of a blend between a feature and a column I have written in the last six weeks some pieces that have I in it, my impressions, speaking directly to the reader. They're not a column where I have an opinion, but when in the absence of talking with other people, I have to stand in for the reader and find that meaning and, and the doubts and the questions, the fears that they're grappling with. And some of the stories that have received the most number of shares have been good stories. Stories about our humanity, about the woman making the big cinnamon rolls. 18,000 shares. It was picked up by NBC News. It, six months ago, that's a, that's a nice little feature that would have been lost under the news of politics, crime, what's going on in the city and the state. But readers hunger for those kind of stories. I did another story about uh, the food bank looking for volunteers. They received more phone calls because of that story than they had in 20 years. Again, it was not the beauty of the writing. It was readers in our communities are searching for ways to make connections in this time of isolation. And that's what I feel the role of a storyteller is. It's almost like you are more relevant, more needed. Your voice, your thoughts, your ideas, your words are needed in the way you've always told them now more than ever, you know, maybe in the big, yes, you know what I'm saying? I do. And I, I think one of the, uh, I know the city very well. I have roots in the city. I have roots with institutions. And when I've called people, they know my work. Oh, I'll talk to you. I've read your stories or I, I, I've heard about you. And so I'm not necessarily going in cold. Now I'm not talking about new stories covering 
what Kate Brown is doing at the city hall. We have great reporters covering that. But these human interest stories where the people I talk to have never really talked to a reporter, going in, they kind of know me already. Funny, and I don't even consider you a reporter. I would consider you a storyteller. I, which, I would say the same thing. I mean, I'm wondering how it affects you in your process. You alluded to it a little bit by saying the types of ways you try to get to the heart of the story are making meaning and nuance through your own interpretation of things without having been been near people. But is it like a flower that has less water and has to get resilient? Because you're such a deep thinker and a deep feeler that emotionally on some level, this has to be messing with your compass of interpretation of the world. Absolutely. My role in the past 40 years have been going to places of pain. I've watched babies die. I've covered homicides. I I went down to the big earthquake in California. I covered the kids who died on Mount Hood. And then I left. I was not part of it. I am now part of this. Everybody listening to you is part of this. You cannot escape what the pandemic means financially, emotionally. You wonder about the future and you reevaluate your past. That's different than going up to Mount Hood, feeling what those people were going through, but not really understanding because you can't. And that's a, a fake thing to say, oh, I know what you're going through. And then moving on. This, we're in the middle of a movie. I don't know what's happening. So I, as a storyteller, I'm grappling with that too, as I sort out my own story, as everybody is out there. I'll give you an example of something, how people are finding community. Uh, Three weeks ago, I decided to mow my lawn, which is a horrible looking lawn. It doesn't even qualify to be a lawn. It's like it's the weeds. But when I mowed it, a neighbor across the street mowed her lawn, and then I mowed my neighbor's lawn, and she mowed the lawn of... uh, a person who works as a nurse across the street, all unspoken. Nobody told us to do that. And yet those are the connections. Those are some of the memories I'll take from this time. I would say I'm much myself and other people. We are much more in tune with the strangers around us. I stop at the pharmacist, peer around the window, say, thank you for working. The grocery store clerk, thank you. We are aware of the people who are part of our lives that we have not really noticed. Now, as a storyteller, I do notice those people. That's where I often get my stories. But for the rest of us, I think we're going to come out of this with a different appreciation about who matters in our lives and who doesn't, and who who are heroes and who are celebrities. Big difference. It's interesting. I started a Facebook page called My Mundane. I did so because I was out walking one day I'm not a walker, but I needed to start walking because the mind stuff was getting to be too thick and too deep and I could not get out of it or escape it. So to escape it, I thought, shit, I got to get out of here. So I'd start walking and I was walking and walking and I turned a corner and there was this woman and she was on her hands and knees and she looked like she was in reverence, like she was praying. And it was just a beautiful kind of scene. And when you go walking, you notice, right? And especially now I'm just noticing everything. And I wondered what she was up to. And it turns out like she was just weeding. And I realized she had such ritual and love and reverence for just the simple weeding. And I had this profound sort of epiphany that the mundane is what's going to save us. 
It's our mundane, whatever that means to us. And I don't mean mundane isn't boring. I mean, mundane is just every day, whatever's around us, our simplistic environments, our things, our objects. To your point, I like what you were saying, you're going to remember the, the mowing of the lawn, right? You know, it's something that maybe before would have been uh, in, inconsequential and now feels so significant. And the everyday things, interactions, moments, objects, things that give us a basis of our commonality and our groundedness that everything might be okay someday. The, I've always been a student of history late in life. But in the past month, I have read uh, a book based on Winston Churchill's 100 days when he became prime minister during the war and the loss of life and the bombing uh, over London. We have not experienced anything in our country in our lifetimes like this. The danger, I think, is we become suspicious of people. When I've gone walking, I see people coming that are running, no mask. I think they're breathing poison on me. That's not true. I, I doubt I will go, be going back to getting on a crowded bus. So it's going to change how we view other people. And I know I'm perceived as the other when I'm walking, just the way I perceive other people as the other. And so I've taken uh, it upon myself when I come upon a stranger to wave or, or say hello, because we are very suspicious of each other, because we don't know who's got it. It's different if we're going to walk around the street with, we're carrying a wad of money and we go, oh, okay, that person looks like a mother. Oh, that looks like a nice little old lady. I don't have to worry. This is where, in a sense, everybody is a potential mugger. Well, so are you saying that there's a new awareness of fear that is going to keep you separate moving forward? Or, I mean, what does that mean? I, I think there's a new awareness of our fragility, especially people of privilege, and privileged by that, I mean, we are not living in uh, poverty in another country. We can go to the pharmacist. We can get food. We are privileged people. But none of that protects us from the fragility of life and death. Now, it's always been out there. Only somebody naive would think we're not going to die. But it touches close to home. Even though I, I know nobody that has this, I don't know anybody that's died. But I'm, I watch the news and it's in your face. And in a one way, that's a good thing. That's a good thing to be reminded of that. We are, we are really all in this together. How do you feel about being part of the story instead of telling the story? What's that like? Because that's a whole new, you, you alluded to that earlier. After 9-11, there was a time where people, movies came out about 9-11 or some books, novels. That was that affected our country, but was very centered in New York City. This is going to change how we view pop culture, how we view people who we give us messages. It, it raises fundamental questions. What is religion? What is faith? Is there, it, do we need it? What is science? Everybody right now is an expert epidemiologist. When I came and spell the damn word, we're being introduced to a new and mysterious world. At the same time, we're dealing with another mysterious world. What is the economy? If you have a job, you get your check. Well, that's the economy. If you, uh, and I do know people who've been laid off, who've been furloughed, that's a new reality. What does that mean? 
And I think one of the big fears is who's in control of this? Who's in control of your little restaurant? And one of the scenes that uh, really hit me was early on in this, there was a man uh, like at a Vietnamese restaurant late at night when they closed everything down with a laptop open and you could see the little glow of the laptop. He was in there writing. Later that night, he had printed up flyers for 10, 15 blocks around his place. I'm open. Take out. You read things into this, but you think this man, that's his life. What does he put into that place? What is he doing? And you see these little moments of people hanging on to what they have and a, a fear that it could be lost. I also worry every generation has something they worry about. If you're in your 60s, you wonder, what does retirement mean? You're in your 40s and 50s? Okay, this should be the prime of my career when I'm building something. You're in your 30s, you think, good God, I'm just getting started and now this. And if you're in high school or college, I, th I think the emotional effect of this isolation and things shutting down will have profound impact on these young people that we really won't know for a decade. It's changing the way we view cities. I've been to New York City probably 25 times since I worked there. That city's gone. Now, it, something might come back, but it'll never be the way it was. I used to love getting on the subway. I'd wash my hand when I got to the restaurant, but it's just different. And we have to adapt to that difference. And as humans, we do adapt, but there's no roadmap for this one. What your life would be post-journalism career and retirement, because you have put so much into this identity of being the storyteller and what meant things to you over each decade, what the milestones were of accomplishment and how you identified with yourself through all those milestones. And now, you know, just put the pandemic aside because we could talk about that forever, right? right. We don't know. But interestingly, I mean, you and I have had conversations about what is this going to mean when you go into your next incarnation? So whether it gets hastened or not, you're still trying to unravel this notion of who you're going to be without what you do. And what does that look like? And the fear and the challenge and the possibility too. I think it's all of those things. So how do you imagine that generally and not because of the pandemic? I would say because I evolved from a police reporter to a feature writer, to a storyteller, storytelling is not based on an institution any more than a musician needs a band to be a musician. I would say that I would find myself turning inward for stories. I've, I like this idea of trying some fiction. I wrote a mystery story published. I read that mystery story. <laughs> um, that intrigues me. So too playing guitar, no belief. I, I do cover songs, but I like the learning. I like trying to memorize the song. I like trying to sing. I've, I've started playing standing up now, which is different than sitting down. And I like that. So me going forward, I'm always going to be fueled by something creative. But it's going to be creative on how I see the world and how I find ways to interpret what I see through either words or playing music or listening to music. In the last two months, I've found myself fascinated with classical music and I, I love it. 
So going forward, the storytellers are different than a doctor. I know a doctor who retired. He's never going to do anything about medicine again. That's, he, that was his job, and he was good at it. Storyteller is different. It's how you're wired. Same way with an artist. It's not the kind of death that I think an athlete faces when they, in their mind, I used to play tennis, played tennis in college. My mind still thinks I could go play tennis. I'd be, I, I couldn't move. People that have careers based on either a title, I'm CEO, or their body face a different kind of death than somebody who has something within them. That's why the most, the, the happiest elderly people, and it's 65 almost, I'm considered as Cuomo says, I'm in that population now. You find that they, they transition into finding something that's fulfilling that has nothing to do with making money or prestige. They just like doing it. That's why you find a, a, a doctor who decides to, to be a carpenter, make furniture. It's not going to be Ethan Allen or somebody who does gardening. I know a guy who was a, a former medical examiner. He really got into model trains because he said, I can control that world. I spend all my time in a world I can't. So if, if you don't have that other thing, it, 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 the, the future could be scary. But that has nothing to do with the pandemic. That's all the time. We've been going through that forever. With all the changes, whatever, with the pandemic and just time and place and whatever, here we are. You had talked about performing in front of people and playing music. And I know you actually fulfilled that once or twice before all this hit. Are you going to feel a little more inclined to get out there and do that? Like, so the expression that was there you were sort of letting it germinate and keeping it to yourself and, and ruminating on it. And how does everything that's changed affect your willingness to put yourself out there in a new way? Still the same. I like it. I like, I like feeling fear. I mean, there might not be a venue to do it, but I don't feel like, oh my God, we're all going to die. I better go do that thing I wish I had done. I, I, I like doing it. Tom Holman in a Zoom room. <laughs> yeah. no, I, I like the feeling of trying something where I don't known by a way in that world. And that can be martial arts. It can be riding a motorcycle. It can be the music. It can be anything because those new experiences are what remind you about living. And I don't want to be some old guy sitting on a, a sofa gaining weight and talking up the good old days. It just, that's, that's not what living's all about. What's something that you want to try that you haven't yet tried? Play in a jam band where there's a drummer, you know, the guitarist, bass player, singer, and you put your name in and they call you up. They go, okay, let's welcome so-and-so. And I will be terrified. And they'll say, okay, what do you want to do? Or and I'll say, or they say, this is what we're going to do. And I will, I will be fumbling and I, will, I won't know what I'm doing. Playing in your bedroom and practicing is going to be one hell of a lot different than real. But that's exhilarating. It's like, I want to do that. That's, that's, that's definitely something I want to do. You want to be on the edge of that butterflyville. I don't know what to call it. It's like the edge of, uh, the edge of non-reason. It's going down a ski slope and it's like, okay, here you go. What are you going to do? I, when I, I rode my motorcycle to Sturgis, South Dakota and back, and I rode 750 miles one day and it was raining, lightning and wind. And it's like, what are you going to pull over? You got to keep going. 
And when you keep going, you go, okay, uh, it's raining, you're cold. It, it, you just keep going. And when you when you get off, you go, I did it. And that's what that jam band would be like. That sounds pretty cool. And of course, you wouldn't let me know you were doing it. No. <laughs> I would only see a black and white photo at some point later of yes. something that was an allusion to it, like a guitar neck and strings or something like right oh, jam band, right? Yep, that's it. <laughs> How are you keeping busy? Like, what is your busyness look like? How are you being with everything and distracting from everything. I have been doing, trying to do a hundred push-ups a day. At once or like 10, 10, 10, 10? <laughs> Can't you just say 25, 25, 25? Jeez. Um, I would say that. And when that first started, I really did find ways to soothe the soul, the Mary Berry Pie, I was eating root beer floats, those kind of things. And we all have the thing that we, that works for us. And then I just thought, that's not right. I mean, I, for, I don't want to put on a pair of pants when this is over and go, what the hell is that about? So I have changed the way I'm eating and try to do something every day balances out work or creative. I, I, I watch the Waltons now every day at noon. I love the show. In the morning, you know, the, the, the old classic TV shows are great. Andy Griffith, Gomer Pyle. Uh, we make fun of those, but they are like having a good drink. They're, they're, they, they calm our soul. And it, it takes us back to a time when things were easy, clearly fake, to be very much addicted to Law & Order, SBU. Not so much anymore. I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want an hour about somebody getting killed and solving the, the crime. It, 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 there's too much of that around us, even though it, I, I don't know anybody that's been impacted, but it's it's too real. I've also liked watching uh, 90 Day Fiance, you know, things like that. A Wall Street Journal had a story out yesterday. That is the highest rated show among women and men are watching it too now. I don't know what to say about that. It's almost embarrassing, but I get it. I mean, what am, I, I don't want to be judging it or anything. I, people have asked me if I watched Tiger King. I'm like, no fucking way I'm going to watch that. I, have, no I way. don't even know what it's about. No way. And I, you know what? For everybody out there who's listening, who watches it, there is no judgment. I am a TV snob because I'm very sensitive. Things stick to me. So it's not a matter of like, I'm better than you. It's just, I know me. So if you want to watch that, watch that. But there's no way. I don't need to see the dredges of humanity. We're we're living it. I don't I don't want to go there. I, I agree. But I like the idea of what going back. I am going back to my TV. I, I'm watching, but I'm not going that far back. I I've been watching Ally McBeal. And I remember that when I was like in my late 20s, it was, you know, I don't know why it was like the best thing that was out there. And I'm it's so campy, I'm watch, but I'm still watching it now because I can't watch any violence. I don't want darkness. I don't like dark comedy. I don't. I don't like that. But I could see going back to the Waltons or Little House on the Prairie or I. I love Lucy or you know that would be kind of fun. I wonder if we're going to have shared artistic gatherings. Before this all happened, I went to a, a little jazz club, and it was 
it was packed and people were right up next to each other. Will we do that again? When will we do that again? And because we won't, we're going to miss something by not having the same experience as of watching a movie in a movie theater. I'll tell you, I do not want to be living in fear. And I think about reintegration and what that's going to mean and um, connecting with people and just humanity and going to a restaurant, taking walks with people. I, I, and then I understand not, you know, about me being responsible and not giving it to somebody else. But at the end of the day, I would never intentionally go about my life and thinking I want to give it to somebody or not give it to somebody. But there's a mental health component, I think, to what's happening, a humanity component that reintegration and connection and all of that needs to start happening in some way that's safe and sane. We can't go on like this. Yeah, there was a story in today's paper talked about traffic is starting to pick up again on the roads and it was empty. Uh, So I think things slowly are starting to not get back to normal, but get back to something more normal. What's that going to look like for you? How are you going to know? How are you going to know when it's time to just come back amongst us or the world or your community? I don't think anybody knows because it's going to be different for each person and what they want out of that. I, I don't know. I think I'll know when all the little stores are open again. Mm -hmm. We'll know. When, it, when it's time and everybody's timetable is going to be different than everybody else's. And I don't think you can ever tell somebody, oh, you're panicking or, or you're too, you're too aggressive. It's just it's, it's, whatever works for that person is right. It's interesting with 9-11, we did have some form of unification, I think, even though it was New York centric and America centric and it wasn't global like this, we didn't see the suffering of people all over the world. It feels like even in a thing that could keep us completely united because we're all experiencing, even this has division and I don't want to go down a political road having a conversation about the politics of it, but division within division. And I feel like what you said, it's going to be up to each individual. How do we come to accept each other with something like this and have some kindness? I mean, geez, I've, I've, with my mundane page, I tell you the one thing I love about it and I have gotten comments on is that it is such a breath of fresh air amongst all the division. People love it. And I know there's people on that page that do not believe what I believe and have differing views. And yet we can connect because somebody's showing me their beautiful irises in their garden. It's felt good. I think uh, going forward, there will be mistakes. Some people will be too too cautious, some will be too aggressive, and the danger is punishing those who are on the other side. Right. If uh, some small town in the Midwest decides to reopen, the cases spike, are we going to say, oh, it serves you right? Right. If other places don't reopen and 10 of their businesses go away, are we going to say, oh, see what happens when you're too cautious. So we have our individual choices and we have our neighborhood choices, our city choices, our state and our country. And each one has a competing interest because we can't all stay home. That's not going to work. And we all can't just go out there and live it up like we did four months ago. There's got to be some kind of balance and I think adjustment and recalibration as we move forward. So I don't know. I don't either. We don't have crystal balls. That's for sure. Like even something as simple as getting in an elevator. It used to be when you would see somebody walking towards the lobby, you would open the door and hold it for them. Are you going to do that now? 
I don't know. Are you, if the elevator has five people on it, are you going to say, I'll take the next one? <laughs> I was kind of a button pusher anyway. <laughs> I was, you know, I, I, yeah, I mean, yeah. Or if people are coughing on a bus or if people are sitting too close in a restaurant, I don't know. And nobody knows because you have the science people who can act, you know, deal with data. And, and that does lend itself to a certain degree of certainty Oh, they can prove this, but who knows what? I mean, they were talking about New York, like African, how many people were going to die? Well, that didn't happen. Was it the social distancing work? But as we reopen, what happens when emotion collides with data? And you've seen it. I saw something in the paper about United Airlines flight, which is packed with people. It's back to the way it was. So how, I, don't, I don't know how we moderate that. And that's going to take, when, when 9-11 happened, you had some people who served as an example to go to New York. New York was a scary part in getting on a plane. But once you got there, you could walk around. But this is different. You could go to your local 7-Eleven and feel endangered. That's the big difference here. There's no place that's unsafe and there's no place that's totally safe. They're, they're kind of all mixed up together. So I want to switch gears. You had written something a while ago about your experience of going to the library and what that meant to you. And it was so deep and touching. And you when I was in high school? Yes. Oh. So I want to, um, because this is kind of where some of the pieces of your puzzle started to crystallize. And there's a picture of you as a boy in the window yes. with the book. Yeah. And that, okay, this. In one paragraph, I can sum up that time. That picture, I was a sophomore when that picture was taken. It ran in the freshman section of the yearbook. That tells you a lot. But the library was my friend. I would go, uh, I went to like five different schools from first grade to graduating high school. And that time at Lincoln High School is when I really discovered the library. And I would read books on architectural, model rocketry, model airplane, just anything I, I love to read. And I would sit on that little windowsill and- Who took that picture? I don't know, but I like it because the quote that goes with it was something like, a man a, a man of thought, leave him alone. Because they saw something. On one side, they saw something that goes, oh, that's profound. The other side is, Christ, we got to fill up a page of white in this section. <laughs> go out today and get something. And they went upstairs. I, don't, I doubt it was that. The picture was too nice. I, I really like that picture. It said a lot about the you, you definitely. that I've come to know. Yes, absolutely. Um, not the you that probably you put out there when you're going around and a little doing bit. the... I, uh, the people, I, I if you look at the world as a book and people as characters in a book, I look at them and see how they move. And this it's... Nonfiction, but I, I see patterns and I they intrigue me. Why people do things they do and what they think about, and that is like reading. It's like opening a good book, and you go, "Oh." Do you? I I still see that you when I look at that when I've seen that picture. Do you see that you? Well, that that's the wavy hair stage when I wanted to keep my hair <laughs> straight. Uh, so part of that is not me. But the other part, yeah, I don't think we really change our core personality because those, those core personalities are shaped by good things and bad things and loneliness or whatever it is. And you can't, 
escape some of those, but if you embrace some of those, they really become your strength. Instead of being a weakness, it's hard to do. There's no other alternative. I mean, that's kind of what I talk about in the book, me, myself, and I, which you were really instrumental in helping me and supporting me before that book was even actually a book. You gave me a lot of really strong encouragement and feedback, which I was so grateful for because that was not an easy thing to do. But the idea of the wounds that heal us, I guess, for lack of a better term, you know, we're trying to find a way to heal those things within ourselves, those difficult things. I mean, I admire people that can face those things head on. And maybe we learn to do it better when we're older, because we don't have a choice. But you also learn to do it when you read history. Like I I read a book uh, a couple a year ago on Herbert on Herbert Hoover, his life. And what a life. He was basically an orphan shipped out to to Oregon, like the first class at Stanford. And Winston Churchill had a very cold mother and an absent father. He was really raised by the nanny. And when you read these other lives, Patton, MacArthur, they fascinate me because they are no different than anybody else. They have all experienced that stuff. And there's a tendency when we look at mythical heroes that we think they were fully formed that way. And when you realize there are no fully formed heroes, you go, oh, they're on the same journey. They're, they're learning as they go along. And even someone like Churchill, as soon as the war ended, he was voted out of office. And he had to reinvent himself. He came back as prime minister again, but his big thing was painting. He loved to paint. And Churchill had a a little saying, he said, a man that works with his head should work with his hands. A man who works with his hands should work with his head. So you, you, you balance that out. And here's a man who thought his career in politics was over, became prime minister, won the war, voted out, and he had to reinvent himself again. And I think life is a series of reinventing yourself over and over. And you, you gets back to your question about that picture. You still carry all that stuff with you. That's who you are. Why do you think there's a need to carry forward the mythical versions of those stories versus the the heart of the story themselves? Why do we do that as humans? Like we either do it for about other people or we do it for ourselves. We carry these other versions of these stories forward and why? Part of it is it's easy. And we really see this when you pick your favorite actor or actress and the and the best movie that you love. And then you see them interviewed and you think somebody wrote the words they said on the screen. And sometimes they look like babbling idiots. And we need those people to be a, a compass for us. I could be that. But then you, when you read about them, you need to realize there are no different. And it's always, it's often disappointing when you meet someone who you have held up as a hero, whether it's a musician or artist or writer, uh, anybody, that they really, they've got good things and bad things about them. And so I think that's what life life is about, figuring out what those are. And that's what I, my, I like to explore those in my stories. Like at the one I did about the old guy at the nursing home that had to, didn't want to be there. And he started a little thing where he took people around on the scooters he didn't want to be there and it's it's 
but his optimism, that's how he was his entire life. And then I've met other people who are old and who are bitter. That's their life. So this gets to the eternal question. Can you overcome your past? Can you? Or can you alter it? Or when the chips are down, what do you fall back on? And you usually fall back on things that you use to try to protect yourself from the pain. And when you run into somebody who could admit to the fear or admit to the pain and still go forward, those people really intrigue me. And that's why I'm drawn to these people on the edges of life that are loggers or truckers or bikers or fighters. They feel the same things we all feel, but they keep going forward where it's easy to put on, if you could afford it, a $2,000 suit and walk into a place and you go, I'm the man. Everybody in there goes, I'm the man. But you get back outside and you're walking down the street and you go, I'm not the man. And that's why these people that we often overlook, when you really get to talk to me, go, God, I learned a lot from from being around you. It's interesting what you said, because most of what you said is from a male perspective, you know, about being a man, like moving forward, sucking it up, loggers, truckers, bikers. You're right. The, the, uh, I've done many, many stories on women and they have a different set of complexities. They measure themselves on, are they being compassionate enough? Are they, are they trying to get too much of the limelight? Do I deserve that? Uh, I'm not worthy of that. And they need to have confidence boosted up where men sometimes need to tone it down. You're, you're not that great. But again, the more you talk to people, you poke around in their background and you say, oh, I get why you're like that. Probably why <laughs> you, know, you feel the need to boost my confidence we all a do. lot. You you have always done that. <laughs> uh, yeah, especially when I was writing. I have to admit it. I'll tell you because I always tell you what's on my mind that there were times when I would be talking to you that I would feel like a little kid amongst a seasoned expert or a seasoned, a wise sage of something, you know, and I feel like just so we all naive and young and innocent or I don't know, you know, I don't, and I don't know what to do with that. That makes me highly uncomfortable. That's the fuel that drives you to, to change. Let's say that I had a friend who was a good guitar player and he said, let's play together. I would feel like I, I don't want to do this. And then he said, let's play. I'll just play three chords. Very simple. Play something. I would be awful. And that's when, that's what a teacher does is they say, you can do this. And sometimes when you run into people that are supposedly trying to help you, they really try to undermine you because it makes you, them feel better about themselves. So somebody will say, oh, that, I like how you wrote that, but I just, I'm not sure. Or you play something, go, I've heard that before. And and a, a teacher goes, I like what you were doing there. We could even make it better if you think about this. Who was the teacher that inspired you that got you going to? Uh, I would say, well, okay, three. Uh, In sixth grade, we had a teacher who had us as part of our field trips would take us. We we went to a college. I remember going to Linfield College in Oregon State. And then he had each uh, you had a partner and you had to go pick a business in town, call that business up and go interview them. And I went to Mossler safe company that made safes and he's sixth grader. So he showed us the get out there. I had a teacher in 
seventh, eighth grade oral written communication. And I wrote a little play uh, based on McHale's Navy. And I wrote all the dialogue and the stuff and uh, the love of reading. In high school, did that, except in a reverse way. If I was interested in something, I would okay, get a good grade. If I wasn't, I would not. And I remember in one class, I went to go visit colleges. And when I came back, the teacher said, since you were gone, I'm dropping your grade down to a C. Years later, I'm at the Oregonian in my internship covering some political thing, like a low-level political, something an intern would do. And there was that teacher. And she said, oh, how are you doing? I said, you know, I never got much out of high school. I walked away. In college, there were teachers. There was one teacher in political science who said, when we give, when I give a test, everything is open. Footnotes, whatever. And I don't give many A's. And I go, okay, I'm going to go to the chat. I got an A. And then uh, a journalism professor who was a great teacher, and he realized he could look inside somebody and go, I see what they could be. I went to college at a time when it was all about investigative reporting, half big stuff, but my really two big stories that are ultimately they foreshadowed the kind of things I write now. When Jimmy Carter was running for president, his thing was to go pick a home out and go stay in somebody's home to see how the average person lived. So I took a bus to get home uh, one Christmas from Des Moines, Iowa to Portland. I rode the bus and I wrote about it. And I, and I wrote about what's it like pulling the place at two in the morning and who sits next to you. And that's kind of my type of story now. And the other one, this is really my kind of story. I heard about a guy who lived in Dubuque, Iowa, who was going blind and he collected light bulbs. And so I went to see him. And if I'm doing that story now, it's a whole about light and darkness, but he was kind of the odd guy in town. Everybody knew him. And I did a profile on him. And first off, I got him to talk to me. And I treated him with respect, not some kind of nut. So that teacher recognized that. Then the teachers in the career are often people that I've written about. When I started on the police beat, they did not like reporters at all. And I remember when I first came down for something, the one guy said, who the fuck wears a pink shirt? Well, that was me. And I came back. I'd ask a question. They go, when did you fall off a turnip truck? I came back and I would have to go out and talk to cops at crime scenes who, and, and they taught me about how to blend in, how to get people to talk later in life in the narrative stuff. It's these people, I get to ask these questions about how do you deal with this tragedy? What, how do you, how do you, what's it like? And they are all my teachers now, which keeps storytelling fresh. I've never written the same story. They have the same kind of themes, maybe, but they're each one's a little different. Is there a story that you carry forward always? And yeah, it's about uh, dancing school. I went to this. I wrote a story. Okay, well, when I was a kid, I went to this ballroom dance class, and it's been going on like a hundred some years now. So, kids who went to West Side seventh and eighth graders, they were in middle schools back then. You go to dancing school and the boys would wear white gloves and a little blazer and tie and the girls would get dressed up and you learned how to dance. The girl that was in math class was all of a sudden like the girl is just different. So I heard I, I was at something and this lady said, oh, my son goes to that. So I decided, oh, I'd like to do a feature story on that. So I went back and what I noticed was that these girls that were so intimidating 
were just little girls. And so I wrote a story, not about dancing school. I wrote a story about what it means to be 12. And that's my favorite story because I was able to write with wisdom. No 12-year-old knows what it means to be 12, but an adult does. I saw things that showed that. A girl who holds her father's hand afterwards. A 12-year-old girl do that. 18-year-old girl won't. A boy will take his tie off to whip his friends and then said, yeah, this girl said she liked me. And in the ending of the story, I wrote, because it's true, that age is a time of knowing everything and knowing nothing. It's the time before the heartaches and the reality of life. And it's, it's pure 12. And that, I really love that story because each person I talked to revealed some element of being 12. And it was a little thing of beauty that when you read it, you, you remember your 12-year-old. I think that's the perfect place to wind this down. If we can hold on to 12 in, in the innocence of 12. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me do this. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. We've talked about this for a while, and I always appreciate your thoughts and your insight and your wisdom. Give a plug Give a plug for my book, Dispatches from 1320, available on Amazon. Amazon.com, Tom Hallman, you'll see the books. And Dispatches from 1320 is a collection of work I wrote at the old Oregonian building. And the story about the dancing school is, is in that book. You are an inspiration, an amazing storyteller, one of my favorite thinkers, and I, I appreciate you. Great. Well, you have a good day. Thanks. My sincere thanks to you, my guest, Mr. Tom Holman. Thanks so much for listening to Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. It's been a real honor. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, share it with someone you think is in need. And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review this show on your favorite podcast player. If you have any questions or comments or would like to connect with me about one-on-one midlife coaching or to purchase the book, Me, My Selfie, and I, a midlife conversation about lost identity, grief, and seeing who you are, visit www.janalopez.com. Lastly, if and when you should have a moment of doubt, because we all do in the middle of the midlife transitions and changes, remember that seeing is relieving. Really